the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. This episode, we welcome another accomplished guest, David Lazel. David plays many roles in the industry. He is the director of the Canadian Energy System Analysis Research Initiative at the University of Calgary, an energy system architect with the Transition Accelerator, and member of the Mitigation Expert Panel for the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Now let's get into the episode with David. Welcome back, Dave and John. I also would like to welcome back our guest this week, Energy System Architect David Lazell. Thank you for joining us again on today's podcast. Our previous episode with you on hydrogen focused more on the basics. Today's episode will deal more with the role of hydrogen's place in the industry, which I am definitely looking forward to learning more about. Dave, could you please kick us off with our first question of today? Well, welcome back, Dave. And my head's still spinning from the information we received from the last podcast. So I'm looking forward to how we're going to move with this next one. First question that I have is, it looks like hydrogen will be used in transportation, space, water heating, and industry. Can you tell us how you think this will play out as far as what industries will be impacted first and, and how that will work through? Yeah, well, I think when you think about hydrogen, it's really all about connecting supply to demand and getting it to a scale quickly. So I would argue that regional hydrogen hubs are going to be absolutely essential. And in fact, it's part of the Canadian strategy is to focus on hydrogen hubs. So every regional hydrogen hub will need to be hand-built based on the resources that they have and the coalition of the willing companies, governments that share in the vision for a hydrogen strategy in that region. And, and so it really is about building a shared regional vision that fits within a larger provincial and, and, and national pan-Canadian strategy. So many of the emerging hubs today that we've been working with and are start with where there's already a low cost supply of low carbon hydrogen. For example, they already have surplus low carbon electricity and they know they can put an electrolyzer in and, and they have a source of water and they can make hydrogen right where they are because they really have low cost surplus low carbon electricity. Or you have a refiner presence, for example, in Sarnia, Ontario, or in Montreal, or uh, in Alberta and Edmonton region, Fort McMurray, the fertilizer plants. They already have fertilizer, like in Medicine Hat or in, in, in Edmonton region, where there is a, a lot of hydrogen being made to make ammonia fertilizer. You know, there's a major use for ammonia. But one needs also the, to build the entire value chain. Because there's no sense having hydrogen production if you've got no demand for it as a fuel, I'm thinking, or as a new, a new demand. And, and you actually need to be able to connect the two. And so, but like any chain, it's only as strong as its weakest link. All right. So, and what's really understanding is that these hydrogen hubs are about building value chains. If you have a source of hydrogen, you've got somebody who's willing to provide it at a reasonable cost. You need somebody who's interested in buying it at a reasonable cost. Right. And then you got to have other people or maybe some of the same involved in connecting the two. So what are you, what we're, are we looking at? Heavy transport is one municipal buses, trucks, trains, off-road vehicles, even ships, harbors, you know, really it's, you want these demand sectors really reasonably close initially to the, you know, in, in order to the supply. So you get economic viability. And so they're, they're usually early in the mix because we pay more for transportation fuels than we pay for many other of our fuels. And so this is a, a market where there's enough spread between the cost of hydrogen production and what 
the customer is willing to pay for that that we should be able to create as long as we get to scale we can make an economically viable system that will require some public funding to get it set up for infrastructure to get things started but it should be economically viable without ongoing public investment and so they're often the early adopters we also need hydrogen vehicle suppliers in the mix because you know you got people who want to buy a vehicle but there's no vehicle vehicles available, that's a problem. And these can be hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles, but there are also some companies that have dual fuel hydrogen diesel vehicles where you can take an existing diesel engine, have it retrofitted to hydrogen injection and create a you know, 30, 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions for a relatively low cost. And you create the demand for the hydrogen that gets you to scale. And so we're looking at that as coming in into many of the nodes or these hydrogen hubs as and so being set up. And then we also need gas companies that are wanting to decarbonize space heating. And they can play a really important role in helping to justify pipeline investments and to provide the dynamic storage for the fueling station. As I as we discussed in the last section, putting hydrogen into natural gas pipelines for space heating isn't as economically viable. But there, you know, there are some carbon credits and fuel standards they can meet that actually makes it economically viable in, in many provinces and perhaps across Canada in the future with new fuel standards. So initially the hydrogen would be blended into the natural gas pipelines. And the beauty of it is they can provide this dynamic buffer to fueling stations so that if, you know, you never want to run out of hydrogen at a fueling station, but you may need to guarantee you're going to use so much hydrogen within a network because you have to get the supplier to you know, take or pay agreement. So. The fueling station gets first priority and whatever is left over goes into the hydrogen natural gas network. And, and at the early stages, we see this the most economically viable. And there's also some opportunities for combined heat and power. And especially in, in, in buildings like municipal buildings, what's fantastic for, for hydrogen, the economics looks so pretty good, is to put hydrogen into, say, a, a recreational center where you're needing round-the-year water heat for swimming pools, you know, you've got a lot of heat demand and, and you're also electricity and, and there's combined heat and power hydrogen systems. So where those are how it would start with basic infrastructure along major corridors and then build out from that once the infrastructure is in place. I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the, the hydrogen and transport. And, you know, here in the UK, our government has said that they want to stop the sale of new, of diesel and petrol vehicles in 2030. And I mean, this is certainly for passenger vehicles. We, we have uh, a number of people in various jurisdictions around the world are, um, are, are switching over to compressed natural gas as an alternative for, for transport. But I wondered if you could be bold enough to say, give us a, a headline date of when we would, be, we would see hydrogen as being commonplace in our transport system. I think it'll be, you know, transport system, I would say I'm focusing on heavy transport trains, which are on very much on tracks and they fuel in certain locations, right? And they often bring the fuel to the train in the train system. And so that's one thing, heavy duty transport. I'm talking about transport trucks, like the big, you know, 40 to 63, 65 ton gross vehicle weight runs that you see on the, on the major highways across in Canada. Those, uh, Relatively small number of fueling stations, turbos, those trucks don't drive into your local corner and grass station, right? They're being the big truck stops. 
And those truck stops would deliver many tens of tons of hydrogen a day if they were hydrogen stations. The economics for those is fantastic, right? Even, you know, we just, we need the vehicles. So I'm predicting that latter half of this decade, we're going to see the first few vehicles arriving. I'd say the first two or four vehicles, hydrogen vehicles of large scale hydrogen trucks and buses will be arriving in, in Canada and on the roads in Canada by this time next year. And, and we see the trains, there'll be trained in Canada by this time next year. So that's a very early start. It's going to take a while, but as we talked about earlier, it's about humps. So it's not going to be one here, one there across Canada. There'll be a, an economic case for hubs, return to base operations, but also corridors. And one of the, I tell the top two corridors in Canada are the Edmonton Calgary corridor, which is 5,000 heavy duty trucks a day. Class eight trucks are moving that corridor and the Montreal to Windsor Sarnia corridor. There's about 10 to 15,000 trucks a day move that corridor, even 30,000 trucks a day in Toronto, if anybody's been on the highways there. So it's just, uh, it's, uh, uh, a massive amount of traffic and many of those trucks all fuel in a relatively small number of fueling stations. And so I think what we're going to be seeing by later part of this decade is targeting corridors and hubs and really getting to scale on the big trucks and the big, and the big trains and, and some ships, et cetera, maybe ferries and that sort of thing in British Columbia, for example, but hard to say we're in the early stages. Now the world's changed when the climate change issue has become much more concerning, but also international decisions to say this incremental thinking of the past hasn't worked. We've not gotten where we need to go moving and making a commitment to net zero just changes the whole framework of the problem and forces you to say, where are we going? This isn't just a carbon tax and walk away. Yeah. Thank, thank you for that. I think it's, it's like a lot of what we're dealing with here. It's a complex systems problem, isn't it? And there, there's so many elements involved in it and we need them all to be pointing in the right direction at the same time. And then something could really happen. So yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm curious, we already mentioned the transportation industry. What other industries do you think are the best targets for hydrogen and what type of transition would they be facing? Well, I think the steel industry, especially in Ontario, in the Hamilton area is, has a huge opportunity in this um, area. I mean, there, you probably heard the announcement last week of, of ArcelorMittal and Devasco essentially committing to, I think it was $1.8 billion investment to, to move to DRI direct reduction of iron technology. Initially, they're going to move from some basic, you know, coal blast furnaces and that sort of thing to basically natural gas. But the system they're building is sort of like future ready, if you like, the system they'll be building to, to put hydrogen in to replace the natural gas. So they can see a stepwise transition. And that commitment has already been made by DeFasco. I, I see it's a huge I think there's about 4 million tons on the table there or 4 to 5 million tons of CO2 emissions in, in that area that, that could be mitigated. It will be a stage process and it'll go to natural gas and then, then move to, to, to hydrogen where the uh, low carbon hydrogen and essentially by, you know, 2040 or so, we could actually see, you know, essentially very close to zero emission steel production in Canada. The price of carbon one would need to drive that is. You know, when you actually look at the overall system, you get the scale is, is not that high. I mean, it's 
it's over a hundred dollars a ton probably, but it's probably not $200 a ton, right? So again, that's, that's something that I'm sure DeFasco has done their analysis on, but they've already made announcements on the last week. They've already moved in that direction. Space heating is another one. There is a, I think it's a real issue of looking at it at a systems level because you could move to space heating, zero emission space heating by going electricity, just resistive heating, example, like they do in Quebec a lot. My concern is that the impact on the grid would be, would be incredibly damaging and a shock. And we already have to grow the grid a lot more to start covering off other electric cars, et cetera. We're going to have to grow the grid size. So in our analysis, it's a hard fit for many provinces of Canada and we see hydrogen. And it's also an opportunity for the natural gas companies that are already delivering gases to each house. We could, you know, modify the infrastructure. John talked about what's happened in the UK a number of decades ago when they went from coal gas to natural gas and they did that major changeover. The UK is a leader in that kind of a transition. They're already looking at from natural gas to hydrogen in cities like Leeds, the H21 project. We're very much you know, in constant discussion with them about trying to piggyback and learn from the UK to see how we could maybe do something similar in Canada. And uh, again, the economics says it's probably well into the 2030s before, but I think we can get started with some pilot projects in, in the shorter term. Uh, power generation, especially peaker plants in regions that don't have carbon capture and storage potential. So if you can't burn fossil fuels and then capture the CO2 and you're in parts of Canada, like Ontario, that, you know, except for maybe Southwestern Ontario, that don't really have good CCS potential, there is a possibility of using hydrogen or even ammonia to, to make power. And then large scale wind and solar operations that not as a user of hydrogen, but as a producer of hydrogen, many of the models that we've been running suggest that you know, the lowest cost electricity is wind and solar. The problem is, is that you built too much wind and solar and you actually saturate the grid and the prices of electricity in a province like on Alberta just collapse. But what we've been modeling and saying, well, if the price is above a certain number, you make electricity and put it on the grid. As soon as the price drops for the electricity on the grid drops below, say $30 a megawatt hour, you make hydrogen. And now you've actually can grow your wind and solar industry to much larger because you actually have a variable demand and you can control your demand and you basically get companies that aren't necessarily in the electricity business, they're in the energy business. They're making electricity when it's, when there's a need for it and they make hydrogen when they have not enough demand on the electricity. And I think those are the kinds of industries and are, I think are, we're going to see as being many of the early movers. And sorry, just to clarify, CCS stands for carbon capture and storage. Yes. Okay. Yeah, CCS is carbon capture and storage. Dave, we work with a lot of energy intensive uh, industries, whether it's in the agriculture or in the natural resources, whether it's steel or cement, things of that nature. So as far as what is the expected market for hydrogen in the steel and cement industries and other industries, and what is the, the temperature heating requirements that hydrogen fits into? It's important to recognize that both cement and steel, it's not only heating. But it's the redox or the uh, reduction, oxidation reduction potential of the hydrogen. It's kind of an industrial feedstock as well as the fuel, if you like. So it, it certainly increases the temperature, but it's actually, you're in the case of, of making, you know, steel from iron ore, if you like, you're basically reducing the iron oxide and making it into, uh, into iron that's going to be steel. My understanding is the, some of the 
discussions that we've had in the Hamilton area are around 500 tons of hydrogen a day would be required to convert in, you know, in the final conversion by say 2040, 2050, we can get to, you know, be 500 tons a day, which is a significant amount. A typical, put that in perspective, a typical a steam methane reformer or autothermal reformer sort of industrial scale is around between 400 to 800 tons a day. So, you know, it would be a dedicated one that would just provide this, the steel industry, for example, for, for iron production. Cement is a bit of a different challenge, you know, and this is a bit of a challenge on steel as well, but cement is a, it's about 60% of the emissions from a cement industry actually doesn't come from burning the fuel. It comes from limestone and out of the rock and they're converting into clinker. So hydrogen is important there, you know, not as a fuel, cause I, you could switch the whole fuel to hydrogen. You still won't solve the problem. So I would argue that, and we've done quite a bit of work with the cement industry, and we see hydrogen as potentially fitting in, not as a fuel for the actual cement making process, but perhaps as a fuel to run a molten carbonate fuel cell that can capture the CO2 emissions out of the, out of the stack from the cement plant and concentrate them into a pure CO2 stream. And in the process, actually make electricity and put it on the grid a low carbon electricity. And there's a possibility that what you get is the cement companies start getting in, you know, if they have carbon capture and storage potential nearby, right? Which is where they can geologically sequester the CO2 coming off the rock and not release it to the atmosphere. Then they can actually get into the electricity business as well and produce low carbon electricity with molten carbonate fuel cells. And the economics, if you go to scale and are getting better, as the multi-carbonate fuel cells, price of those comes down. There's also a possibility for heavy industry like cement, for example, to use the byproduct oxygen that is produced with large scale electrolysis. For example, you could have a nuclear power station that has excess electricity. It makes hydrogen, you know, electrolyzes water, makes hydrogen and pure oxygen. Right now, they typically just release the oxygen to the atmosphere. But if they captured that oxygen and put it in a pipeline and sent it next door to a cement plant, you could actually run the cement plant instead of using air in the burner, you could actually burn pure oxygen. It's called oxid firing. And what you would get is a pure CO2 stream, more or less with water. You take the water out and you've got a stream that is virtually uh, pure CO2 that could be used in sequestered geologically. And so you could decarbonize. And essentially what you're doing is you're piggybacking a cement industry on, you know, partnering it with a large-scale wind and solar farm that, or maybe a nuclear station that is actually making hydrogen. So you're actually taking the waste product hydrogen generation from green hydrogen and using it to decarbonize another side. And, and that, I think, is going to be essentially setting up industrial clusters, I think, is a significant opportunity in, is as we move to a net zero that, you know, we take, you make sure that you got a really valuable product there, pure oxygen, that, that could be, and we've just done a model on this an analysis, and we could even pipeline that oxygen 200 kilometers from a wind farm, and it would be cheaper than many other alternative carbon capture storage in cement plant. So if I could just to follow up, cause I, this is so interesting. Cause we have a customer that's very similar to what you just described location wise to a nuclear plant. I'm interested in what role, like a SMR, like the, the small nuclear, will they be able to fit into this piece that you're just describing? 
I, absolutely. I mean, you know, there are many of the SMRs where they were talking about making, I mean, with a nuclear, you can make electricity first and then convert the electricity into hydrogen, or you can basically use the heat of a nuclear reaction to try to make, you know, make the hydrogen directly from water. I think both of those, I don't know that much about the thermal process for nuclear thermal conversion to, to hydrogen. My guess is it probably still involves an oxygen evolution, but I'm not sure if it does, then, then I could see there's a possibility of maybe a, a mark or a part, a partner in a market for that oxygen in something like a cement industry. The, the challenge is, is you've got to get big, right? It, right. It's again, getting to scale, scale, you know, and, and, you know, around the Bruce nuclear station in Ontario, for example, there is some salt caverns just south of there that is salt salt storage potential that one could store oxygen theoretically, or, you know, certainly store hydrogen still used for storing natural gas now in that region on shore of Lake Huron. So I think there's some opportunities there, but again, I think what we're going to see in the next 20 years, as we, you know, every, we're seeing a rethinking of the structure of our energy systems. I think it's going to create some new partnerships and perhaps it's wind and solar or nuclear to cement industry. It could be, you know, the wind and solar to getting in the hydrogen business. So it's not just about selling electricity to the grid. It's about, it's about being an integrated energy company. Thank you for that. And sorry to interject again, SMR is small module reactor, correct? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. It's also steam methane reformers. So I have to remember which, who's, who's talking to me. So, so it's uh, very good that you, uh, uh, pointed that out because I think uh, David Arkell was talking about uh, small boxing reactors. Yes, and it's interesting when you talk about SMRs because often the conversation then goes to they're perfectly safe, they're, they're what power submarines. So, you know, there is an argument that we have good technology there, but I think if people are concerned about a pipeline running through their, their property, they might be slightly more concerned about having an SMR next door, but who knows on that? We're talking here... Economics. The yeah. biggest with SMR, I think, is it's getting the price down. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we don't have one of them to do yet. So we got so Yes, it's it's we've got to wait here. We're we're talking about the the iron, you know, iron and steel and cement. You know, they're industries we've been in, involved in and are involved in. And they they have for a long time been, if you like, energy sensitive because it's been such a, a major part of their cost. I, I recall I, I got involved with what, what's currently Tata Steel in South Wales. And at the time that I was do, doing some work with them, they were they were planning to have a plant they said was not connected to the grid elect, electricity-wise. Effectively, everything generated within the steel plant. The question... Now that wasn't that was driven by pure economics more than environmental issues, but I suppose the qu the question I'd like to ask is, is is a twofold one: is what is it that is going to encourage iron and steel, well steel and cement, the the heavy heavy energy user industries? What is it that's going to encourage them to switch from fossil fuels to hydrogen? And as a sort of second question to that. Are there advantages or disadvantages in being an early adopter in doing that? Yeah, I think always early adopters are always this, you know, being on the bleeding edge or the, <laughs> yes, 
it's a concern, of course. I would just see in the companies that we're dealing with, both in cement companies and steel companies, is their customers are coming to them now and wanting to them to demonstrate. And when they bid on projects, especially when they're selling into often government projects or, or for large industries, in order to get the contract, they have to demonstrate how their production process is linked so that, and they're willing to pay a premium, their customers are willing to pay a premium for their cement or their steel if it's lower carbon. And uh, they will lose a contract if they're just coming for the lowest price and haven't demonstrated, you know, a low life cycle emissions associated with the products. And so I think in certainly the companies that we've been dealing with, this is something that's driving a lot of their thinking. And the steel industry, for example, is both in um, uh, the steel industry in, in what is it, the Sault Ste. Marie, as well as the steel industry in, in Hamilton and in Ontario, both of those have recently committed and received some significant government funding in the 400 million plus for each of them that to, to go on a pathway to decarbonization now. Part of it is concerns about increasing carbon taxes. Part of it is market opportunity, I suspect. I think you want to talk to them about, you know, uh, about what their reasons are. It would be not appropriate for me to tell them why they did things. But what I am noticing is they are doing it. They are thinking about it. In the steel industry, it's very clearly what makes sense for them. I would agree is, is moved to the DRI process and direct reduction iron process with natural gas. But make sure that process and all of their infrastructure can take, you know, 20% hydrogen and 30%, 50%, 80%. As the carbon taxes go up and market shifts, they can decarbonize the process and not have to replace their infrastructure. And I think that's key. I think one of the other drivers is some international discussions about possibly uh, carbon tariffs on border process for import, right? Because what you don't want to do, many of our industries like cement, steel are, are, are trade exposed. And so what you want to make sure is that you're not penalizing your domestic industries and giving a free freebie. So for people, you know, from other countries who are putting in the environmental constraints, yeah. investing in those things are coming in and selling product, taking market away. I think that those are, again, where policies can line up. And my sense is though, that there's a pretty big. There's a pretty strong demand now from end users, you know, for whether they're building bridges or buildings or, or cars to want steel or cement to, to be lower carbon. We talked about quite a few advanced topics in this episode. So to end this episode off as an expert in the industry, what are three takeaways that you could give our listeners that let's say they are now seeing their industry transition into a hydrogen outcome? Okay, I think the, maybe the first one is that in the transition to net zero, hydrogen is, is going to, has to play, I would argue, an important role. Uh, how big it is, in some ways, that will be decided by market forces, et cetera. But assuming we're getting to a, we're moving towards a net zero in a significant way in the next 30 years, you know, hydrogen will play an increasingly important role. Second is that Canada can make blue and green hydrogen at a lower cost than just about anybody in the world. And if the world's moving in this direction, and we have the resources and the capacity to actually make it, we'd be crazy not to take advantage of that opportunity for export opportunities. But also if we become our early mover on setting up hydrogen hubs, we can attract the companies in the world that want to move to a hydrogen economy to come here and test and start marketing 
their products here. And one of the things we're very active is, is in discussions with some of these companies, whether they're making hydrogen fuel cell trucks or buses or maybe furnaces or whatever, to maybe stop and start their manufacturing here because it's going to be close to where we can demonstrate significant market demand. And I saw be the second one. And the third one is, it's probably big, go big or go home, right? If we don't do this, if we don't, if we tried to just piddle around, drag our feet, you know, not really get to scale or try to sprinkle, we'll do a little bit here and a little bit there and, you know, maybe it'll work out. It won't work out. This is a commitment. This is a, we need a coordinated multi-government and industry shared vision of, of a transition to net zero. And there are many industries. It doesn't need every industry signing on. We need a coalition for will. And I think, you know, there's certain industries where this just makes so much sense and we're seeing them come out now and say, we're ready to move. The steel industry was one of the most recent, but you know, I think we're seeing many that are on the production side that are really keen to, they see an opportunity for, for hydrogen as being sort of a, a, a zero emission gas of the future. And I would argue that getting those companies to start to work together, we could take lessons from what's happening in Europe and the UK, uh, you know, as really coming out with things like the, uh, you know, the, the backbone project, the hydrogen backbone project in Europe, which is about pipeline network of hydrogen. There's a hydrogen council work in the UK, et cetera, that there were there a number of different industries and governments have, have gotten behind a shared vision for the kind of net zero energy system that we need to build and how can Canada win in this transition. And that's, I guess where I'd end it. Those are fantastic takeaways. Thank you so much, David, for joining us again today and providing us with your hydrogen expertise. I know there were many valuable points for our listeners on the future of hydrogen in the industry. Any final comments, Dave and John, before we close off this episode? I, I'm, I'm going to have one, but it's just thought because I, I've talked to a few people about this. But Dave, Dave and I are both great believers in that there's not enough energy literacy around, that people don't understand energy well. And I, I think, unfortunately, a number of people, when they hear of hydrogen, they think of it as being something dangerous. And I think we've probably got to do quite a lot about public education because, you know, it isn't really that much more dangerous than much else of what we're using, but they don't, don't realize that. So I think that's my final contribution. And I would argue that it's probably less dangerous than many of the, yeah, that we already, and we know how to handle it. So Dave, your comment about go bigger, stay at home. I, I think if we don't go big and we don't go faster if, with the recent announcement with the, the ICPP paper society people in general around the world are in trouble. So uh, not only do we need to do this for, you know, humankind, but actually there's so much opportunity to take advantage of. And the sooner people get on this and understand it, the better uh, we will all be for this. And uh, the fact that you reviewed and gave us the information that uh, I think will be very informative to our listeners, I think is a great help. So thank you for all your time and your information today. It was really helpful. And thank you. My pleasure. Good talking to you again. Thanks, David. Bye. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360energy, Inc. Tune into our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360energy, Inc. See you next week.